Defense Department employees stationed in Japan say they've been facing a serious crisis in accessing health care, going on for months. The problems have eased a bit after DOD partially reinstated some civilian access at its military treatment facilities there. But Congress is looking for something more long-term. Federal News Network's Jared Serbu has got an update on the problem in the latest federal report. He joins me now. And Jared, safe to say the National Defense Authorization Act will be the vehicle for this remedy? That's a very good guess. There's actually provisions in both the NDAA on the House side and in the appropriations bill on the House side, both possibly going some way towards solving these access to care issues that civilians have been facing really since last September. In that authorization bill, the NDAA that that you mentioned, Congress is looking for a study conducted, interestingly, by U.S. Indo-Pacific Command and not the Defense Health Agency on some of the access challenges that have been happening out there and what what its workforce really needs to conduct its missions. And then on the appropriations side, there is some language in the bill this year that that really expresses concern about the military health system's hiring practices, its ability to give access to care to its entire population, not just in Japan, but really around the world. And so on that side, on the appropriator side, they're looking for a strategy uh, within 180 days after the, the bill's passage. Sounds like it's something at least both sides can agree on because there's a lot of things in the NDAAs that they're fighting over, which could delay the whole thing. But just by way of brief background, in general, civilians covered under the federal health benefits program don't access their health care through military facilities, except occasionally when they're co-located out of the United States. Yeah, it's a complicated question, and you get different answers depending on exactly who you talk to in terms of what people were promised. We've talked to some folks who say they were explicitly told by their hiring agency that they would get their health care through the military treatment facility. Others who have said that that's just always been, you know, de facto the case. What The way it actually works on paper is that civilians, when they are assigned overseas um, to, to DOD commands, are treated on a space-available basis. In practice, until recently, that hasn't really been a huge deal because there has been enough appointment availability for them to get adequ- adequate access to health care, especially in Japan. There are other parts of the world, I'm told, where it's much more common for folks to go out on the local economy to get their health care. That hasn't been traditionally the case in Japan, partly because of very big cultural differences in the way medicine is provided in Japan compared to what we're accustomed to in, in Western medicine from, from uh, U.S.-based providers. It has been, again, traditionally the case that, that a lot of DOD civilians, most DOD civilians, have gotten their care through MTFs. What happened last September is the Defense Health Agency, which, remember, now runs all of the military treatment facilities, took a more, I guess you, you could call it, narrow interpretation of that space available policy and and said that they were only going to allow these civilians to make appointments on the day that they wanted care and only for acute non-recurring conditions. So they would literally have to call their clinic or their hospital every single day to see if there was any appointment availability for the particular category of care that they or their kids might need. And in some cases, it took a very long time to get seen. Then just one more piece of background here. DHA partially reversed that policy in March so that people could once again make some appointments in advance and not just have to wait till the day of. But what advocates there say is that it really has not restored their access to emergency care and there still really is not a lot of appointment availability. So it's still a pretty serious problem out there. But basically what Congress is looking at in the NDAAs to fix this permanently is starting with a study. 
Yeah, that's right. And, and, and I think it's interesting that they're asking Indo-PACOM, which is the U.S. combatant command that's responsible for the region, to talk about what its needs and its mission risk would be under various types of healthcare scenarios. So they're asking Indo-PACOM to look at really three different scenarios. One is just a continuation of the, the current policy, which is creating some of these access problems. Another would be a scenario in which DOD is directly responsible for providing care to these civilian employees, as well as military members and their families. And then a third scenario where they're doing all that, plus contractor employees who are attached to these commands. So they want Indo-PACOM's views on what kind of, again, mission risk it would be accepting under each of those three scenarios and what its overall costs for for, uh, having personnel in the region would be, how those would be impacted by those three different choices. And then there's the issue of mothers who are delivering babies in Okinawa, and that's come up also. Yeah, the whole issue of obstetrics has been a, a big issue that has popped up ever since these access to care problems have, have become really acute. And, and some folks will tell you it's been an ongoing issue even before that. This Okinawa issue that you talked about is just one example of that that happened relatively recently in which they very briefly put all of their patients and, and not just civilian patients, but also military patients on what they called diversion into what they, what they called a stork nesting program where they would be flown back to the United States for really the duration of the, the, the latter parts of their pregnancy and recovery. They managed to reverse that a few days after it became public. It, they have not been explicit about how they managed to do that, but they did manage to find adequate staffing to let folks who had appointments to have their babies in Japan at at Okinawa um, follow through on those. So a lot of back and forth on these policy changes, and that's part of what's been so frustrating for for the people who are living through it out there. And in its defense appropriations bill, the House is taking a broader look at the whole access issue, as you're writing, beyond Japan specifically. Yeah, that's right. There's no language specific to Japan on the appropriations side, but they're, they're talking about the severe difficulties DHA more generally has had in attracting and hiring medical personnel really around the world. And nurses, apparently, is really the big problem that the committee is talking about here. They want some reporting on the current hiring practices that they say leave the department at a disadvantage when it's competing with private sector healthcare providers and, and when they're recruiting those personnel who are sometimes civilians, sometimes contractors, depends on the situation. DHA, one of the things it has done over the past few years is started to phase out some of its military medical billets. And so it's become increasingly reliant on those civilians and contractors who it has to uh, compete with the private market for. So that's that's part of the issue that's going on here and part of what the committee wants some answers to. Yeah. And the House bill then would restore some of that staffing, right, the uh, organic staffing to the military treatment facilities. It's not clear that they're going that far quite yet. It looks like they're still in sort of the study phase to understand some of the consequences of this Again, reduction in those military medical billets, um, but but they have not reached the point yet where they are directing DOD to restore uh, the, the, those personnel, either on the military side or on the civilian side. They may get there. All right. So they're concerned about access and they're dealing with it legislatively. But really, then the whole idea is hostage to what they disagree about in the NDAAs which are somewhat health care related with respect to abortion care. 
Yeah, that's that's the issue that's going to uh, cause quite a bit of controversy on the House side. I should I shouldn't say is going to. It already is. It, it does appear that because of some language that was added on the House floor, which would basically require DOD to stop funding travel so that people could, could get re- reproductive health care. That's going to be a poison pill for the Democrats who will not vote for it. That's most likely going to be sorted out in conference committee and, and may be completely stripped out of the bill when they negotiate with the Senate and it goes back to the floors. But a, a lot of steps between here and there before we see uh, before we see the legislation return to the House floor and the Senate floor. Federal News Network's Jared Serbu. Thanks so much. Thank you, Tom. Check out his federal report now online at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees, joined Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to share how his upbringing in rural Alabama eventually propelled him to the forefront of thousands of union members raising a collective voice. After years of leadership with both the largest federal employee union and as a pastor, Everett Kelly reflects on his deep-rooted values of integrity and hard work. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Mr. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees. Everett, welcome, and thank you for being here. Shane, thank you. It's a pleasure. It's mine. You first joined AFGE in 1981 during what eventually became your 30 years of service at Anniston Army Depot. We're now more than 40 years past 1981, and you've been the union's national president since 2020. How's your decades-long involvement with AFGE impacted the way you view your role now as the union's leader? The time that I spent as local president, I simultaneously spent that same time as a pastor in Alabama. I like to say that this was my training ground because as I was entering into the role of unionism, I was also entering into ministry. And so I see my role, even as the union leader, as ministry. It's never an understatement because this is what I believe. I believe that if you love people and show people that you love them, people will follow you. My business is in the business of growing people, uh, and that's what I do. And I I think that my training as a pastor and as a union uh, leader has given me the ability to really, you know, uh, grow people because I feel like that, you know, it's my responsibility both as a union leader and as a pastor to ensure that people have a livable wage. It's also uh, my responsibility to ensure that people are treated fair with dignity and respect on the job. And I think that goes in both uh, arenas. So so I've seen this, you know, as ministry, as I've grown through the four decades of leading people. Putting those two together is amazing. AFGE handles a massive array of issues and topics of importance to feds across many departments and agencies. What is it like being at the forefront of all those moving parts, and how do you manage it all? Well, first of all, let me give kudos to my staff, okay? Uh, Because it's just no way that I could manage all of this work and all the moving parts by myself. But I have an excellent staff that always makes sure that I'm prepared and that I'm ready. But it's exciting. It's exciting to be out in the forefront, you know, uh, bringing 
people to the realization that they have something to fight for. But again, I cannot, and please understand when I say I cannot, it's, it's, it's what I truly believe. I cannot do it without a good, strong staff. Um, and I tell anybody that, but I enjoy fighting for the cause. I enjoy standing in front of a group of ALG members, calling them to action, and then standing back and watching that action come to fruition. Because I know that I'm not the one that's doing it. Okay? They're the one that's doing it. I'm merely casting a vision, right? And I enjoy casting a vision and then watching a vision come to fruition. And it's the staff and the members that get that done. As CEO at, at WEPA, I completely and totally understand that. We rely on them. It's not Absolutely. just nice to have. We rely on Absolutely. them. Absolutely. As AFGE president, you often speak at union rallies and other events widely attended by federal employees. What's it like to experience that direct connection to employees? And how does that influence your leadership style? You know, that gets me excited, okay? To be standing in front of a group of AFGE leaders get me excited. To hear the words, who are we, and the chants that come back that says AFGE gets me excited. It gets my motor uh, running, if you will. And it's exciting to look at them and see the motivation in their faces when they're fighting for a cause. And, and, and all of us come together and fight uh, in solidarity, fight as one, raise one voice. You can't explain the feeling. You just know that it's right. You know, I just know that it's right when I'm standing there and I feel this. And I never fail to say thank you again because I'm the one that merely cast a vision. They are the ones that get the work done. And so when I see them out there ready to go and that call to action goes out, and then I see them really begin to march on that uh, initiative. It's an energy that I cannot explain. I can explain it. I'm feeling it right now. <laughs> um, de describe how your personal background and upbringing folds into how you function as a leader. You know, understanding that I was born in the Deep South. I was born in a little small town in Goodwater, Alabama, population 1,292 today. Born to parents that, and I hope I don't offend anybody, and I've got to quit saying this, but, but I was born to a set of parents that, believed and trusted in God. And that began to establish who I was. I began to trust God myself in everything that I do. I, I trust God even in this situation as a union leader because my parents taught me to believe in uh, the Bible. And with that came do unto others as you would have them to do unto you. In other words, treat people right. Treat people with respect, right? Do what's right. It taught me, you know, about integrity, right? It taught me about being honest, you know, and that's what's needed in the role of a leader of this union. It, it, it's, it's needed, uh, and, you know, I try to portray that. I try to portray a person of honesty and a person of integrity. And so being in the Deep South, you know, you, you, you just learn those things, and that's what has helped me uh, throughout my path as a union leader. And it's always nice, that whole approach, because you don't have multiple approaches with different people or different sets of different tasks, different energy. It's, it's always straightforward, yes. honest, here's the truth. Yes. And it, it's, it's easy. Yes, right? yes. It's a lot easier 
than having multiple personas. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. What's one piece of advice, if you could go back and tell yourself when you were starting your career? You know, I don't know you're asking for one, but I'm, I'm going to have to elaborate on two, yeah, if that's yeah. okay. Number one, I would explain the urgency of integrity a lot sooner than what I did, right? Because to me, integrity is not necessarily what you see others do or what others see you do, but integrity to me is what you do even when no one is looking. And so I, I would really begin to stress that importance more so at an earlier state in my leadership role rather than the latter part. Okay, I begin to stress that more now, but I wish I had began to do that more at the earlier states in my uh, role. Secondly, I would tell myself to always, and I'm going back to my roots, always work hard and don't ever accept no as an answer, right? Because I just believe that if you want it bad enough, if you want to achieve it, you can it's all about the amount of work you put into it, right? And the and the amount of faith you have that it can be accomplished. So when I look at AFGE and its membership and where we were four or five years ago and where we are today, that's a reminder that you can do whatever you want to do if you put your mind to it and work hard enough. And one question that's always kind of interesting at, at the end of our time together is, is there one person, you mentioned your parents before, mm-hmm. um, is there one person or maybe more than one who really inspired you when you were younger that you might even think back on today? It was my grandmother, you know, with the understanding that when and when I was born, right, as I said, I was born in the Deep South. My father worked extremely hard. We didn't have a whole lot. You know, my, I had 12 siblings. And so when I was born, I was very sick. A matter of fact, the doctor said I wouldn't live to be 16 years old. The doctor said I wouldn't ever hold a job. But my grandmother would always teach me how to pray. And she taught me about faith. And it is prayer and faith that has allowed me to be standing here today. Suppose I've been dead 50 years ago, but I'm 66 years old now. And it's all because of my faith and my belief and my prayer life. And I believe that beyond a shadow of a doubt. Amazing story. Thank you for sharing all of it with us, Everett. And really appreciate you being on the show today. Pleasure is mine. And this is Shane Canfield. We'll see you next time on Lessons in Leadership. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.